0: Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we would love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in, where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Well, Father, we come into this place this morning enjoying this time of year, enjoying this season, enjoying the sights and sounds of our city in this time, and grateful for a chance to refocus ourselves on you. As we come in, we also come in tired, some of us overwhelmed and distracted, feeling weak, wondering how we can press on to what lies ahead. And so we pray today that you would meet us in this place, And we pray that you would open your word for us by your spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our hope, that we pray. Amen. Amen. We've noticed a cycle in D.C. over the last several years of being a part of leading this church and pastoring here. And I know that as we've seen people come into this place, some of you have experienced this cycle. There is a grind to this city. And it seems to be a pretty common pattern that people will move into this place. Some of you here this morning are here on internships um, and are just here for a few months. Some of you just moved here recently. Uh, We see this often every two years. There's seats that change hands in Congress, and so we get new staffers and an influx of new people coming into Capitol Hill that come in and are excited and idealistic and ready to change the world D.C. attracts people that want to change the world. And then you get here. And over time, some of that idealism gets at least tempered and for some of you gets beaten out of you mercilessly. And so then you either decide whether you're going to hit the eject button and use this experience to pad your resume and launch you into another career somewhere else, or whether you're going to double down here and say, no, I'm going to stubbornly make it in this place. And those of you that have decided to stubbornly make it in this place, I praise God for you. Now, within that, there's a grind that happens, so this grind of going from, being, uh, from idealism and excitement to becoming overwhelmed by what's around you and the task that's ahead, and that can lead to discouragement, that leads to disconnection, and leads to apathy, ultimately. That doesn't just happen in careers, though. That happens, there's cycles for us in all kinds of ways. I mean, that's the cycle that we hit in our own physical health, right? We are in the time of year where already, after Thanksgiving, I don't know about you, but after Thanksgiving, I'm already like, I need to watch what I'm eating. (laughs) I'm like, I know that the first of the year is coming, and I'm stubborn enough that I'm like, I'm not going to have New Year's resolution. I'm going to make it today or tomorrow. It's always tomorrow. (laughs) Monday, I'm going to start exercising again. And then you get overwhelmed by what happens. I am—I am am a pro. I can make you a workout plan that would be amazing if you followed it. (laughs) And then discouragement sets in. You become overwhelmed by the fact that three workouts doesn't do the trick. Leads to disconnection and apathy. It happens in our spiritual lives. That there are times when we come out of the gates excited and passionate, we're consuming God's word and reading books and having discussions with people in our lives and investing ourselves in serving the church and being connected in our community groups, and then a grind sets in of real life that leads to discouragement, that leads to despair and disconnection and apathy. It happens in relationships across the board. Well, today is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent. And I know that we kind of lose the sense of Advent culturally because culturally, the Advent season, Christmas season, begins with what event? Black Friday, Halloween. <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> as, soon as, the, as soon as the ghosts and goblins go out, Santa comes in. Um, but So the, the, typically people will say Black Friday and say that Black Friday is when the Advent, the Christmas season officially begins and it begins with shopping. How am I going to get the best deal? And then we have Cyber Monday where you actually go shopping these days. And, and so we have all these deals and that kicks it off, but what we're doing is we've actually short-circuited the idea and concept of Advent. Advent is actually a time not purely of celebration and indulgence. It's actually the opposite, traditionally. It's a time of lament and waiting. It's a time that we're reminded that, that there is a gap between the promises of God that we've received and read in His Word and the reality that we experience now. And that waiting and anticipation then comes to its fullness in the coming of our King Jesus on Christmas Day. So this year in Advent, we have turned to the prophet Haggai for help. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Haggai chapter 2, if you can find it. (laughs) Um, Don't be ashamed about using a table of contents today to get there, or just look at the screen. Um, We tend to steer away from minor prophets because they're confusing to us, because they seem desperate, because we don't understand the context and it's hard to get into it, but they are so helpful for us. And today, in Haggai chapter 2, we will see that God is present with his people even in their own weakness and discouragement. Last week we saw the beginning of Haggai. We covered chapter 1, Pastor Chuy Rodriguez did for us, and did a great job showing us the, the reality of our own lives and, and to consider our own ways and our devotion to God. As God's word came to the people of Israel, they had come back after exile, and they'd been exiled to Babylon. They came back to Jerusalem, and they invested in their, themselves, in their own comfort, in their own homes, in their own crops, in their own wealth. And in the midst of that, God came to them and said in chapter 1, essentially, hey, the temple is still in ruins, and how you need to look at your actions and look at your priorities and put God's glory first. And the people, surprisingly, obeyed. They listened to God's word and wanted to obey him, and so now we continue that story with Haggai chapter 2, the first nine verses. And this is what we read. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, "'The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. "'Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, "'governor of Judah, and to Joshua, "'the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, "'and to all the remnant of the people, "'and say, who is left among you "'who saw this house in its former glory? "'How do you see it now? "'Is it not as nothing in your eyes? "'Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel,' declares the Lord." Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is... All right, so again, this is coming to people that had returned from exile. Nebuchadnezzar had sieged and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in in 587 BC, and he destroyed the the temple that Solomon had built. Now, last week, again, we saw that God's word came to his people saying, your priorities are off. You're focused on your own security and comfort and households and have neglected rebuilding the temple of God. And amazingly, again, the people responded with obedience and, and got to work rebuilding that temple. Now, today's text comes just one month later after chapter one. And it tells us that, that it came to the people in the seventh month on the 21st day of the month. Now, the reason that's specific, for us, we might hear that and say, like, okay, why? Why is that detail in the text? Well, this is important because this is in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, a major feast in the Jewish calendar, it began on the 15th, and so this, the 21st here is the seventh day of the feast. It's the completion of the Feast of Tabernacles. You can look at Leviticus chapter 23 if you want to go and read more about what that feast was. We don't have time to get there today. So the whole population of the, of the Israelites in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles would actually move out of their houses and, and sleep in booths that they had built, tents. It was a giant citywide campout. Can you imagine how fun that would be? And dangerous? (laughs) Um, You know that people used to sleep in the city parks in DC when the city was being constructed, that that in the summertime, without air conditioning systems because there was not electricity, they would actually sleep outdoors in city parks in the summertime to be able to cool themselves down. Now the idea of like, hey, let's just hang out in Lincoln Park tonight seems a little weird, right? But in the Feast of Tabernacles, the entire city, the entire people of, of, of Israel would move out of their homes for seven days, they would build these booths out of palm branches, and it was a time to celebrate, it was a time of harvest, a time where people were celebrating God's provision for them and remembering specifically the Exodus event. God bringing his people out of Egypt and through the wilderness and providing for them food and drink and water and provision and direction through the wilderness years. And so this feast was remembering God's provision for them. This is also the same time of year that Solomon had dedicated the the first temple As you can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 8, that Solomon had dedicated the temple during this same feast. And so there's significance in this text to saying, hey, this is when the date is because this feast of tabernacles is remembering God's presence with his people, remembering the dedication of the temple, and now they're called to rebuild it. But as we saw last week, this feast would have been a little more subdued. The people didn't have crops, there was a drought. God took responsibility for it, saying, I've sent this for you so that you would get your focus back. The temple was in ruins, and still in the midst of that, in a hard economic season when there wasn't much to eat, when the temple itself was lying in ruins, the word of God came to his people. God still spoke, and he was still present. And the passage begins today with his word to his people begins with the question of saying, All right, speak to these people Zerubbabel, the governor, Joshua, the son of Jehozek, the high priest. So speak to the civic leader and the religious leader of the people, and speak to all the people, the remnants of the people that are here. And the first questions are Hey, who's left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How many of you remember that? How many of you can picture this temple? And there wouldn't have been many left. This is at least 50 years later, possibly 70 years later, and so most of the people that had seen the former temple in its glory had, had died. And so there's a question of saying, okay, those of you who can remember, who have you seen it? There's an, a, there's an implication to this question. Not many of you have, and so all you've experienced of the glory of God's temple is laying in ruins in the middle of the city. And so here there's a disappointment not just in the materials available, but there's also a disappointment that the sacred objects of the temple had been carried off. There's no Ark of the Covenant. There's no lampstand. There's no altar. Everything was gone. And God's word comes to his people here, saying, even though things look bleak, even though my own people had returned to the land and not turned back to me, God calls his people to two things in this text. He begins by saying, be strong and work. He says it three times. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, remnant of the people. And it's declared by Yahweh, their God, the Lord. It's his divine name when we see it in all capital letters like it is in the text. Be strong, all you people of the land, and work. Why? For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, we so he's saying, it's discouraging right now, it's disheartening right now, it's difficult right now, but be strong, because they had to have felt weak. It's God here encouraging his people, almost like a good coach or a personal trainer saying, he's saying, get up, get to work. Be strong, and I'm right here with you. Lord of hosts here is, is Yahweh, the warrior king. The hosts are a heavenly army. We get this mixed up, and we're going to get to Luke 2 today. So, but when we hear Luke chapter 2, and it says that, that there were shepherds out in a field, this is the end of the Charlie Brown Christmas, Right? The most profound ending of any of the Christmas cartoons. I love the Charlie Brown Christmas. That's why you may have noticed, you may not have, now you will, can't help but notice it. In Advent season, all we play before and after the services at Redemption Hill is Vince Guaraldi trio and the Charlie Brown Christmas on piano nice jazz tones of piano tinkling through the sanctuary as we enjoy the lights and, the, and set the atmosphere. But in that in that movie, Linus stands up at the end and quotes Luke chapter 2. But I think when we picture the heavenly host showing up to shepherds watching their flocks by night, we think of a simple angelic choir of singing glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those on whom God's favor rests. And, and we need to understand that a host of angels was an angelic army that showed up in the skies that the language here that he is the lord of hosts is saying this is yahweh the covenant god of his people and he is the warrior king over an angelic army that stands at his disposal And so when God calls his people here, be strong and work, he's saying, look around you, there is no harvest, you guys have been selfish, and so there's been a drought on you, the temple lies in ruins, but still, I am here with you, and so the reason they should be strong is he's saying, I am the warrior king, what do you have to fear if my army is standing behind you? Now get to work. But the foundation of his call to them isn't just that he's the Lord of hosts. He goes on in verse 5 to say, according to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. At Mount Sinai, when God said to his people, hey, I'd like to move in with you, you'll be my treasured possession, you'll be my people, and I will be your God, and and they said, yes, we want this, and the result was God gave them the law to say, this is what it looks like to follow me, even though his people had defied the law, had turned away to false gods, had disobeyed, had rebelled against him, God says to them, now, my covenant still remains. My promise and my covenantal love still remains for you. You are still my people. I am still your God. And because of that, my spirit remains in your midst, not because the Israelites have been so great, but because Yahweh, their warrior God, stands behind them and loves them and has promised to stand with them and his spirit remains with them. So that's why he says, fear not. That's the second command that comes to his people. Fear not. And listen to what he goes on to say. He says, I'm going to shake things up. In a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I'm going to shake the nations. So that all the treasures of the nations will come out and and, and will come in and I will fill this house with glory. He's talking about a temple that hasn't been rebuilt. I'm going to fill this house with glory. I'm going to shake out the nations. I'm going to fill this place with glory. And in fact, the latter glory will be greater than the former. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So the God, their warrior king, says, I've got an angelic army, and I'm going to go shake out the nations, and all the gold and silver are mine. I couldn't help but think about this. Um, Last night, Alyssa and I got a date night, which was glorious, and we went out and we saw the new Fantastic Beasts, and I love the Nifflers. They're the best. If you haven't seen the two movies, that's fine. Uh, you should. Um, but they, they have these creatures that look like little duck-billed platypuses that have an obsession with sh- everything that is shiny, and they also have a magical marsupial pouch where they can store whatever they grab. If you haven't seen it, it sounds super weird, but just stick with me. <laughs> And so these little creatures are mischievous, and it's funny, and they're cute, but they end up playing important roles in the story. But they find anything that's shiny, shove it in their pouch, and then there's points where Newt Scamander, the main character, has to figure out how to get the shiny stuff out of the Nifflers and try to return it to the rightful owners, like jewelry shops. You can imagine the problem. And so you have to shake out the Niffler, and all this shiny stuff comes falling out. God is saying that the nations are essentially nothing more than a cute and fuzzy duck platypus that he's going to shake out. <laughs> the gold is mine, the silver is mine. He says, this is no big thing. I'm the Lord of hosts. I'm, I'm the warrior God that is going to bring and return the latter glory. This place will be greater than the former. And in the midst of all of that, there will be peace. It's shalom, welfare, and fullness, and life, and peace. Peace. Now, we hear this, this glorious proclamation by God to his people that his covenant still remains, that he is on their side, that that he's working with them, so be strong, get to work, fear not. We hear all those things, and still, if you are a discouraged soul coming in here today, you know how the people might be responding, because it's not hard to have the jump to go, okay, um, that sounds great, but how do we know that's going to happen? I mean, look around. This place is lying in ruins. The latter glory is going to be greater than the former. Like, we've heard about Solomon's temple. I can't see how we're going to bridge this gap between the promises of God and the reality in front of us. How is that even possible? Because, like, the Ark of the Covenant is gone. And the Ark of the Covenant, the top of it was the mercy seat on which God's presence would rest. And if we don't have the Ark of the Covenant, how is the temple ever going to achieve any glory, let alone greater glory, later on? How are we supposed to wait for the promises of God? Like, we've been waiting a long time. We were in exile in Babylon. We finally got back, and he's mad at us for building houses? Like, how do I reconcile this gap? Maybe God can do it, but I'm just too tired to even be a part of it. If you've come here today discouraged and feeling weak, you need to hear the word of God to you. It's not a word of guilt and shame to say, oh, you should be better. It's, it's, it's a word to say, his presence is with you in Christ. It's not a command, be strong because you're so strong. It's a command to say, remember the promises that God has made to you, and in those find your strength. And so in order to understand this, I think we need a bigger picture of the temple and the glory of God. God. So we are going to go on kind of a whirlwind survey, Genesis to Revelation and back, in the next few minutes. Um, But I think this will be helpful to understand the importance of understanding God's glory and presence among his people and and the role that the temple played and why it's so important in the book of Haggai. So in Genesis chapter 1, we see God's creation of this world. And the glory of God was seen in creation. We read that in Romans chapter 1, that we can see his glory in the world that he made. In Genesis chapter 2, he made people and had an intimate relationship with the people he created that were in his presence and in his in perfect communion with him and with each other and with the world he created. And then their sin and rebellion against God changed everything. There were consequences to their rebellion. It, and it, it led to the brokenness of this world that we all experience to this day but there were consequences to make them realize their need for God. And so but this, this theme of God's glory and his presence with his people is pervasive throughout the rest of Scripture. The word for glory that's used in Haggai chapter 2, when God says the latter glory will be greater than the former, is the word kavod. And it's used more than 200 times in the Hebrew Bible alone, let alone in the New Testament, the corollaries. But it really kicks up in the book of Exodus. In Exodus, when God's people come to Mount Sinai, he saved them out of Egypt. He rescued them out of captivity and out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, brought them to himself at Mount Sinai, and as they are at Mount Sinai, he gives them the law and delivers it to them, and then they have this whole incident where they turn from him immediately before Moses can even get down from the mountain. God's people had already created a golden calf that they were worshiping. So Moses shattered the law, he threw down the stone tablets and went back up onto the mountain and tried again and interceded for the people. God threatened to leave them and, and Moses came to God and said, said to him, please show me your glory in Exodus chapter 33. This is Moses pleading with God, don't send us out, we're not leaving here without your presence, show me your glory. And God said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you can't see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And when my glory passes, I will put you in a cleft of a rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by we read about this, that he hid Moses in the rock and placed his hand over it so that Moses could only see the trailing edge of God's glory because of Moses' own brokenness and fallenness, he could not see God face to face and live. And as the Lord passed before him a little bit later on, the Lord proclaimed of himself, And so Moses experienced the trailing edge of God's glory, and when he came down from Mount Sinai, it says that his face was glowing and radiant, and the people were afraid. And just from being that close to God's glory, so he had to wear a veil over his face. Well, we encounter God's glory again in the building of the tabernacle. And so when we go ahead to Exodus chapter 40, God had given very specific instructions on how to build a tent of meeting for his people as they moved around in the wilderness. And the tabernacle was the center of the encampment of the Israelites throughout the wilderness years, throughout the 40 years in the wilderness. In Exodus chapter 40, we read about the tabernacle, that when it was finally completed, we read this, "...then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting." And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. And so this is the dedication of the tabernacle. God's glory filled it so that they couldn't even go into it. And this was where God met with his people, where his presence was visible among his people. Now, as they settled, his people settled into the promised land, and David united the kingdom and made its capital in Jerusalem, then God demanded a house for himself, that this tabernacle would be made a permanent structure and a temple. And it was built under Solomon. It's David's son. As Solomon dedicated the temple, listen, this sounds familiar, understanding what happened with the tabernacle. And so this is the temple that that in Haggai they're looking back to. It says, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer dedicating the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord in the, on the temple they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Do you hear the echoes and the strains that we've already seen? On Sinai, God's proclamation about himself is that he is gracious and compassionate, that he is good and that his love endures forever. When we get to the dedication of the tabernacle, God's glory filled it so that people couldn't even enter it. Here, the temple, that's extended. And so then when we get to Isaiah chapter 6, we again see the glory of the Lord in the temple Is Isaiah the prophet has a vision. And, and he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Um, Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Ezekiel chapter 10, we read about the sins of the Israelites, particularly the Israelites' leaders, and the prophecy that the glory of the Lord would depart from the temple, And that it would be destroyed. Some of the people that Haggai was speaking to experienced that. They had seen the temple of Solomon. They had seen Babylon come in and destroy it. For the others, it was a distant story. Something they had heard about. But we need to understand this background and what had happened. That this is what it's talking about. When God says the latter glory will be even greater, the people had to have had some question of going, how is that even possible? Solomon dedicated that temple. Fire fell from the sky and God's glory filled it so that we couldn't go into it. Isaiah experienced the glory of that temple and there were were winged creatures flying around, singing hymns to God, declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So how is it possible that this house should be greater than the former house? Well, that's where... Something new enters in, in ways that can never be expected. There were temples built. The temple that was built under Herod was bigger than the temple Solomon had built. But we never read about the kind of glory in that structure that we read about in Solomon's temple. And so as we hear about how the New Testament enters in and this new work that God was doing, we read in John chapter 1 that there was the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God in all things, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That language for made his dwelling among us could literally be translated from the Greek as he, he built a tent or tabernacled among us. And in Jesus Christ, we see the fullness of the glory of God. This In Luke chapter 2, that famous Christmas text that Linus reads, we read this, that suddenly there was an angel with a multitude of the heavenly host Praising God and declaring glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. And so the angels were crying out God's glory in the birth of Jesus Christ. That God had taken on flesh, and the glory of God was now inhabiting human form. Jesus' glory was even revealed to His disciples. Peter talks about this in one of the letters that he wrote. When he says to the people that he was writing to, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. Peter's saying, well, this isn't just stuff that we were making up. He says, no, no, no. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. See, Peter is saying, in the transfiguration of Jesus, Peter and James and John were on the mountain with Jesus, and he's saying, we saw the glory of God descend as a cloud, and a voice come from heaven saying, this is my son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And Peter's saying, this is when I saw the glory of God. For Peter, the mount of transfiguration is the event he goes back to to justify the truth of his claims even more so than the resurrection here because the glory of God was revealed. How does this relate to the temple? Well, Jesus caused some controversy in John chapter 2. And he went in and cleansed the temple. He turned over tables of money changers and said, take these things away and don't make my father's house into a house of trade and the Jewish people said to him, what, what do you do? What sign do you do for doing, show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, I love John because in his gospel he's an explainer for us. Sometimes in Scripture things just kind of drop and we have to figure it out. John builds all the little connections. And so he goes on to say, the Jews said, It's taken forty-six years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So John says, nobody got it at the time. When Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days, they were thinking about the second temple, which is the one physically that God is telling his people to build in Haggai chapter 2. And they're looking at that temple saying, say, and saying, we, this took us 46 years. God told us to build this thing and you're saying we could t- destroy this thing and raise it up in three days? And Jesus is saying, my body is the temple because the presence and the glory of God came in its fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. Not a physical structure. In a man who lived life on this earth and in his death, All of death was defeated, and he was raised up on the third day. Now he extends that to his church. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read this, and he came and he preached peace. The very thing that God had said would come in the latter glory, that peace would come. He came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those of you who are near. For through him we both have access to one spirit, in one spirit, to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined and together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Church, this is what the church is. It's the household of God. And the latter glory of what God has done through his indwelling Spirit has far exceeded Solomon's temple because it is no longer bound to a location and building. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone And the latter glory we look ahead to is told to us in Revelation chapter 21. And listen to this, when we get to the end, when we come into God's glory and presence, this is what we read, and in that city it has no need of sun, or wait, sorry, and I saw no temple in the city. Why? Well, because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it because the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, you listen to this from Haggai chapter 2, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. He's going to shake out the nations. All the gold is his, all the silver is his, the glory of the nations is nothing compared to the glory of our God and they will bring their glory to him. Its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The author of Hebrews picks this up, and he says, At that time a voice shook the earth, but now it is promised once more... I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken remain. Therefore, let's remain grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. the word of god through the prophet haggai to his people matters profoundly to us because we see the fullness of god's plan for the temple in his glory and so we've come to into this place today so many of us feeling weak and discouraged and, and just tired and afraid feeling like, I don't know how we're going to keep going and keep putting one foot in front of the other, and we need to remember God's call to his people that came through the prophet Haggai. Things look bleak. Things are hard. Advent is a time of waiting and anticipation, looking back at the promises of God and the work of God with longings for what he has promised to do. Advent isn't just a celebration for us of the coming of Christ. Advent is a season for the church to long for and anticipate the return of Christ, that he's going to come in glory, and his glory will fill the earth, and his kingdom will be revealed in full. And so church, the two calls to us are the same today. Fear not. In this place, God will bring peace. And it's been extended to us through Jesus Christ. The latter glory will be greater. When he says, I will fill this house with my glory, he will shake out the heavens and the nations, that his glory, what he's saying is ultimately, his glory will fill his church, that it will fill his people, and through his people extend throughout this world that the promise of Genesis 3, that God will bring redemption, comes to its fullness in Revelation 21, and we get to be a part of that work that God is doing. And the inextinguishable light of an unshakable kingdom will shine. It'll light our path in front of us. It'll illuminate our hearts within us. And through us, it will shine through cracks of broken vessels into a dark world. And so we have hope. And don't fear. We can find peace for our weary souls. And once that fear is removed, once we realize we've got the Lord of hosts standing with us, We have an angelic army behind us and a God who has a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Then we need the reminder, some of us today, be strong, get to work. Yes, Advent is a time of lament, but but we can also get caught in, in, in such deep lament that we never actually live out in obedience. And one of the themes that we see throughout the book of Haggai is that our obedience and our action matters to God so there's a call to us today be strong that happens three times in this text we can't ignore that that command right be strong Zerubbabel be strong Joshua be strong all you people A call from God to be strong not again because we are so great on our own but because we have his strength behind us and then get to work Charles Spurgeon said, You will never glory in God till, first of all, God has killed your glorying in yourself. And so, if we're freed from glorying in ourselves to find glory in God, imagine what that would look like in our lives. We'll be freed to work for the good of others instead of just for ourselves to lay ourselves down self-sacrificially like Christ we'll be freed to work toward God's glory rather than our own glory we'll be we'll be able to breathe life and courage into discouraged people around us and that you understand it is such a simple thing to encourage somebody and it is so hard for us to do it i know there's like 3 of you here that are super encouragers and i praise God for you you know the people that when you walk into a room, they just, every time you're with them, you're like, I just feel so great about life and myself and I need to spend more time with them. We can all be that way. But to be encouraging to others, it means that you've got to be more focused on others than on yourself and that you've got to have eyes that are opened to see the glory of the image and likeness of God and your brother and sister and be able to celebrate it without worrying about whether that, how that lands with you on a scale. But I promise you, there is not a single person here today or in this city that is over-encouraged right now. So in case you ever think, like, well, I just don't want to be too encouraging because I don't... (laughs) Quiet. (laughs) If we really believe that the promises of God extend to us, are maintained because of his love for us, not because of our faithfulness to him. If we really believe that, that even though things look hard now and it looks like the temple lies in ruins and it's been a really hard harvest and we don't, we don't know where provision's gonna come from, but we can look back at how he's provided in the past and hope in the glory ahead and really find hope in that, then it's gonna mean that we let go of our fears, that we actually gain strength from God's Spirit's work in our midst and that we can get to work in pursuing his glory. It's according to the covenant that he made with us. And, and he's saying to the people in Haggai, he's saying, look back to Egypt. I saved you from captivity to the Egyptians. I brought you into a promised land, a place of rest. I gave you my presence in a place for worship. And, and that's the promises they were clinging to. Church, how much more so for us? When God looks at us, and says, says look at the promise we have in Christ, That we have been freed from bondage, not to Egypt, but to sin and death itself. That we have been freed from bondage to to ourselves and to fear. And that we have been given provision for all of eternity and, and inheritance in the kingdom of light. So that we can turn in hope. And as God's spirit is with us, we can have hope that if God is for us, then who can be against us? So be strong and get to work. And so this morning, to all of you who are wrestling with discouragement, there's hope. It's the theme of the first Sunday of Advent, is that there's hope. And if you're not wrestling with discouragement today, your turn will come, and there can be hope. Act in faith. A belief in the, in the sure promises of God serves as a foundation. And, and it's true, we need to be settled in our minds and hearts, but it's also true that at times we need to act on the commands of God that have been extended to us and live in obedience because as we live in obedience, those rhythms and patterns of obedience will get to our minds and hearts. There are times when that, our discouragement in, that in our discouragement, the way of faith is shown through action. And so let the Holy Spirit be your personal trainer today. Say, get up. Be strong. The voice of the one to get you out of the bed in the morning, the one that can press you into action because through obedience your faith will grow. In obedience and good work you'll see the promises of God come into fruition in your life and the lives of others and you'll have greater confidence in the glory to come. I once heard a pastor who I love and respect say, hey, if you look at the things that other people do in their lives and say, My gosh, that is incredible faith. I wish I had faith like that. If you he said, if you bemoan your lack of faith, here's here's what you should do: think of the things that you would do if you had great faith in Jesus. And then do them. And your faith will follow. God's call to his people through Haggai today is along those lines. Saying, saying, listen, have faith. Believe God's word when he says that the glory of this house will be greater than what was here before. Even though they could not possibly imagine that, they couldn't fathom what was going to come through Christ and what would be promised in eternity. And so yes, we are waiting for the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And yes, things may look bleak, and it may be hard to imagine the glory of old and the glory of what we read in the pages of Scripture extending to us. It's things that we've only heard about. But let's press on, church. Resting in the glorious promise that we are not alone. That God's spirit is with us. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to hear your word to us today? Would you help us to understand and believe that you are the Lord of hosts. A warrior king. And that your presence with us isn't just tied to a location or a building or having the right implements for a system of worship, but that your glory and fullness was pleased to dwell in the person, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, that that temple was destroyed but was raised up on the third day, And that there is hope for us to look ahead to a city that needs no temple because it is filled with your glory. Father, in light of those things, help us this week to remember your promises. Help us to to remember what you have said to us and what you will do for us. And in light of that, would you remove our fear by the presence of your Spirit? Would you help us to be strong? Would you help us to work for your glory and your fame? In the name of Jesus, our hope that we pray, amen.